You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, Rachel and I, my wife, I say that as if you know us intimately, but just in case you don't, we got married, oh man, in 2007. I had a moment of panic there. Every time, every time the anniversary comes up, I go a little numb inside. 2007, if it's not 2007, let's just pretend it was a leap year or something. We got married, and uh, shortly after, we moved back uh, down to Texas where I was in grad school, and we had like no friends. Um, Rachel was uh, uh, working a part-time job. I was going to school, and so we spent a lot of time uh, watching movies, and I think I referenced this before. We had this really cool thing that you guys haven't heard of called Netflix. Um, but it, it wasn't like the Netflix we have now where you can just go onto your computer. Uh, we, we use this thing, again, most of you don't know what it is. It's called the United States Postal Service, and you could take these uh, things called DVDs, again, a strange time, like in Leviticus, and you could send them through the mail, and they would send you back more DVDs. And so we, we had a habit, uh, because we didn't know anyone, and, and this is the beginning of our exciting marriage, of watching a lot of movies on the weekend. And one of the first movies I remember us watching as a couple was a movie called A Beautiful Mind. Now, if you haven't seen this movie before, <clears throat> to this day, A Beautiful Mind is probably one of the most emotionally evocative movies I've ever seen. Like, I remember to this day how I felt internally as I watched this movie, and it, it wasn't good. I, I felt a, a churning in my, my soul as I watched this movie. This movie uh, is a 2001 film about a, a man named John Nash. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a biopic, and so it's mostly true. Uh, John Nash is a Nobel-winning mathematician. <clears throat> But what we come to find out as we watch his story unfold in the movie is that he suffers from severe paranoia and schizophrenia. But you don't know that as the movie unfolds. He doesn't know that as the movie unfolds. He comes to find out slowly throughout the movie that he is schizophrenic and he suffers from these intense delusions. Now, as the movie unfolds, the, the, the delusional life of John Nash and the, the actual life of John Nash don't seem to blend all that much. Um, and, and if they do, it's kind of a, a benign blending. It, it, he operates well. I mean, he's a Nobel-winning mathematician, you know. In his delusions, he is way better at operating in life than I ever have been. But eventually, the, 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 the delusional life, the false life of John Nash, and the real life, they collide with catastrophic effects. There's one particular scene that's, that's incredibly moving. His wife, John is married now, is outside, and she's hanging up some clothes on the line, and John is inside with his infant child. And his wife, just kind of in the, 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 the scene, has kind of a pause, an eerie feeling that comes over her, and she runs into the house, and she hears her child crying, and she hears the water of the bathtub running. And as she goes into the house, she encounters her husband, John, who is not in the bathroom. And she says, what are you doing? 
Where is he? And he said, it's fine. So-and-so, a delusional friend or person, is with him. And she runs into the bathroom and hears this child laying in the bottom of the bathtub, about to be overcome by the rising water. And she pulls the child out and she runs downstairs in a panic and begins to call John's doctor. As she is calling John's doctor, another delusion overtakes John and he begins to see his wife about to be attacked by another man who he believes to be in the house. And so he rushes towards his wife in what he believes is an attempt to save her and he knocks her and the child over. And the wife and the child, they run out of the house together to leave him. You have this collision of two worlds, one that is real and one it is not. And when they collide, it is to disastrous effects. His real life is eventually hurt, almost destroyed, by what is not real. And the story only resolves as John learns how to anchor himself into what is real. Now, I tell you this story because the book of Leviticus handles many of these themes, not schizophrenia necessarily, but the interplay in our lives and the lives of the people of God in what is actually true and what oftentimes we believe is true when it's not. See, God gives Israel these laws in Leviticus, these commands, these words, when they are in the midst of a wilderness. They are encamped all alone with God Himself. The the palace tent, the tabernacle of God, is in the midst of their camp. Outside of their camp is quite literally a tornado of fire and cloud that testifies to the very presence of God with them. They truly are the beloved people of the Lord God, Creator of the heavens and earth, Yahweh. They are His. He is with them. And He is leading and providing for them. But the Lord is leading them to a place and into a promised land where they will soon not be only by themselves, just them and God, but they will be surrounded Surrounded by people that do not know the Lord God, that are not His beloved people, they will be tempted to put their hope and their trust not in the Lord, but in other people and in other things. To put it a more simple way, Israel, the people of God, will soon be tempted to believe not what is true, but what is false. And if, they buy into and live out their lives, not based off of what is true, but what is false, it will have disastrous effects on their lives. The second half of the book of Leviticus mainly deals with this idea of what will become of Israel when they enter the promised land. And the Lord, as a good and loving Lord, is spelling out for them what they need to do, what they need to grasp a hold of, what they need to saturate their lives in in order to live underneath of the good and gracious truth that they are His and He is theirs. Now, we've covered some sensitive topics in Leviticus. 
right? We've talked about sacrifice. We've talked about slavery. We've talked about sex. We've talked about diet. We've even covered finances in the book of Leviticus. But today, we are probably covering to our culture what might be the most sensitive of topics. Or to put another way, we're probably talking today about the topic that we are most or least prepared, excuse me, to give over to the Lord. And it's the topic of our schedules. Today, we're going to talk about holiness being set apart to God in the rhythms of our life, in our schedules and in our calendars, in the priorities of our days. Now, let me say this up front. It was easy to craft this sermon in a convicting way. It was easy to craft it in a convicting way because it was immediately convicting to myself and I love you guys and I know you guys. But here's what I want you to hear. As you hear the words that may be convicting today, I want to remind you of why the Lord speaks a convicting word over us. And it's because He loves you. He desires good for your life and flourishing. And so as we hear, as we feel the, the pains of conviction today, I pray that they would be labor pains. That they would be the Lord leading us to the birth of something good, of the birth of life that sustains us, okay? Let me give you, before we enter fully into the details of the text, kind of a flyover of our passage today. So as I mentioned, Leviticus 23 in verses 1 to 25 that we read over is the subset of a full list of sacred observances or holy rhythms that the Lord gives to the people of God. It's all of Leviticus 23, also all of Leviticus 25 that speaks into this topic. It's also covered in depth in the book of Exodus in chapters 23 and 34, Numbers 28 and 29, and Deuteronomy 16. Suffice it to say, the Lord has a lot to say about this topic. Today, we are speaking of a few, only a subset of the Lord's observances and rhythms that he gives to the people of God. The first that he speaks of is the heater dying back there, or is someone trying to break in to hear the gospel? <laughs> if it's the second, someone open the window. We'll continue on. The first is the weekly Sabbath. We'll just call it the movement of the Spirit. It's powerful in this place. The first is the weekly Sabbath. This was a weekly observant, the seventh day of every week, where Israel was instructed to cease all work. The second observance, the second really and the third, is called the annual Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover was a celebration that recalled and reminded and commemorated for the people of Israel their rescue out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a continual meal over seven days 
where Israel did not eat their normal meals, but instead dedicated their meals to unleavened bread. The annual feast of first fruits took place at the beginning of harvest season, which would have been the harvest of barley for them. This feast included a burnt offering, a grain offering, a sin offering, and a peace or fellowship offering that they would bring into the presence of the Lord at the tabernacle. For more information on that, if you want to go back, uh, we spent the entire first week just kind of detailing and laying out all of these sacrifices. The next feast was called the Feast of Weeks. This was at the end of harvest season. This would be at the end of the harvest of grain. This, again, a celebration and a a time of worship to the Lord included the full range of sacrifices that the Lord had laid out for the people of Israel. And then finally, in our passage today, we come to the Feast of Trumpets. This was a day of rest that was marked out by a communal blast of what they called trumpets, which would have been rams or sheep's horns called shafars. Listen, each of these individual festivals and observances can be studied and detailed, and there is much for us to see. But what I want us to do today is to see broadly what it is the Lord is trying to speak about. Why is it that the Lord is calling Israel into all of these different observances? Why is He instituting these feasts, if you will? Or maybe another way, why is the Lord so keen, interested, invested in the schedule of His people? The answer is three purposes I think the Lord shows us that need to be redeemed in our schedule. So this is what we'll look at today. Here are three purposes. The first is this. Our schedules are meant to testify to the Lordship of God in our lives. Our schedules are meant to testify to the Lordship of God in our lives. Second, our schedules are meant to remind us of God's faithfulness. Remind us of God's faithfulness. And third, our schedules are meant to draw us into relationship. Our schedules are meant to draw us into relationship. Are we ready? Let's look at the first one. Our schedules are meant to testify to God's lordship in our lives. In the beginning of the book of Genesis, in chapters 1 and 2, we're introduced into this rhythm as God creates. He creates the heavens and the earth and He declares it good. He creates the sun and the moon and He declares it good. He He creates the plants and He declares them good. Now this repetition of the word good leads us to something that the Hebrew language calls shalom. The word shalom is oftentimes translated peace, but it's it's more than just a a ceasing or a lack of hostility. It's something better, greater. Shalom is, is everything as it ought to be. Right? Shalom is that sense of a deep exhale when you just kind of go, oh. Shalom is when you get home from camping after camping on the ground for a couple days and you lay down in your bed that night and you go, oh, that's shalom. I don't know what that feels like because I don't go camping. 
but I do know what my bed feels like, and it's glorious. All right, shalom is everything as it ought to be, but it's utterly lost in humanity and the world. It's lost when sin enters in and the world is given over to sin and death. And when that happens, when shalom is lost, our lives become enslaved with a new lifestyle. We become enslaved with a need to provide for ourselves. We become enslaved with a need to protect ourselves, to fight for resources that are scarce. We're going to find out about that, I think, during Christmas season this year. Right? We're going to fight to find and ensure security and value and respect. All of these needs are new to life in this world that came with the fall. But in the Lord, and in this passage, and in the story of redemption, we find the world calling His people out of that lifestyle. Out of a lifestyle where we scratch and claw and fight to be our own Savior, to be our own provider, to be our own God. And He invites us into a world through His laws and commandments where we can live at rest as His people. This is why the Lord intends to be Lord over our schedule. You know, as as we read our English translations from all of these verses, in verse 1 to, to, to 25 in chapter 23, you have this repetition of this word feast, the feast of trumpets, the feast of the weeks, the feast of first fruits. There's only one problem. There's no word feast in the Hebrew original language of chapter 23. We translate it that way because the, 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 the people of God observe and eat together and mark these occasions through feasts, but what we actually have throughout the chapter that we're reading is the word moed. That word in Hebrew literally means appointed. Appointed meaning uh, decided beforehand. And so every time you see the word feast, what you have is a appointed time from the Lord. An appointed season of the Lord, an appointed meeting of the Lord, an appointed feast or meal or sign of the Lord. But the emphasis is not on the feast. It's not on the time or the season or the sign. The emphasis is on the fact that it is appointed. Which means someone has decided beforehand that this time, this season must be observed. So what do we do with this? Why is the Lord appointing all of these seasons and times? It's because as we read, the Lord is calling us out of that other life. The ordinary life, if you will. The life where we have to provide and create a future for ourselves. And through these appointed seasons and times, observances and feasts, the Lord is calling us to be His holy people. Pastor Adam did such a great job last week of reminding us and laying out for us what it looks like 
to live out our lives as a holy, set-apart people. But it's not just your actions. It's not just your interactions. It's not just whether or not you keep your rules or commands of the Lord. The very rhythms of your life are meant to be holy. Your pursuits are meant to be holy. Your meetings, your commitments are meant to be holy. Your schedule is meant to be holy and set apart. The Lord claims lordship over your calendar. He claims lordship over what you do and do not do on a given day. And so he says to Leviticus, he says through Leviticus to his people, these are the rhythms you must observe daily, weekly, on an annual basis. And as the people of God set their schedules, they would put these observances, these holy times, these appointed feasts first. You know, there's a concept that's called a rule of life. If you read any books on spiritual formation or on following Jesus and the way of Jesus, you'll oftentimes run into this term, a rule of life. And it sounds really complex and fancy, but it, it, it's, it's really not. The, the, the essence behind it is put the first things first. Right? I don't remember if you saw this or went through this in, in a science class when you were in elementary, and I feel like every pastor has done this example at some point in time, especially when they're talking about schedule. They'll take like a, a, a mason jar, right? And they'll have uh, rocks, small pebbles, and sand. And, and they'll be like, do you guys think this could fit all in one jar? And people are like, no way. I don't know. I just imagine people are really excited. They're probably not. And he's like, oh, they can. It's like a magic trick, right? Oh, they can. Right? And he puts in the big rocks. And then he puts in the pebbles. And the pebbles kind of settle down around the big rocks. Then he puts in the sand. And it settles around. And he's like. Right? And then like someone jumps out of a birthday cake or something. I don't know. I, I might be getting the magic show mixed up at this point in time. But, and then he's like, but if you do it backwards, it doesn't work. If you put the sand in first and then the pebbles and the big rocks, it doesn't all fit. And the point is, or maybe they just, like the moral of the story is, you know, pay attention to the big rocks in your life or something like that. But the emphasis here in that story and, and, and in a rule of life is simply this. If God is the creator of the universe, and the best thing that's ever happened to you, which it is, is that he has called you to be his beloved sons and daughters bought with the blood of Christ Jesus. Then nothing else should be decided in your life. Nothing else should be planned in your life. No other commitment should be taken in your life until you look to the Lord who is Lord over heaven and earth and certainly your iPhone calendar. And saying, God, what does it look like for me to love as your live as your beloved? What does it look for me to trust that you are Lord over all? Jesus says this little interesting thing, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. But let me just put a little prelude to that. What your schedule reflects is what you treasure, and what you treasure is where your heart is. 
And so if you want to find where your heart is, look at your schedule. And I'd ask the question, does your schedule reflect above all else that you are loved and led, provided for by a good and gracious God that gives you all good things and withholds nothing that is good? Our schedules are meant to testify to the Lordship of God in our lives. Second, our schedules are meant to remind us of His faithfulness. Each of the observances outlined in Leviticus chapter 23, they essentially have a do and a do not. Right? They each have a, a command, you must go and do, and a prohibition, you must not. And when you look at all of these prohibitions and commands, you're going to find one thing in common. Each of them are there to remind us of God's faithfulness. If you look at many of the feasts, they are tied to specific meals. And these meals, yes, are a celebration and an eating and partaking of good gifts and good food, but they are also incredibly intentional. The Passover meal was the eating of a single lamb. It was a reminder. They actually told the story of the Passover through the eating of the meal. And as they did so, they reminded themselves of how they were orphans, slaves in Egypt. And how the judgment of the Lord came upon all of Egypt. But for those families that, that hid underneath of the blood of a lamb, a spotless lamb, that the judgment of the Lord passed over them. And those families, the people of God, were led out of bondage into freedom, into being the beloved people of God because of that Passover lamb. And so as they ate, they were reminded that the Lord God himself provided that lamb for them. They were reminded of his faithfulness. Same with the festival or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The reason that they ate unleavened bread for seven days directly following the Passover is to remind them that even as they were brought up out of Egypt and into the wilderness on their way to the promised land, they could not provide for themselves. And so the Lord God himself rained down bread from heaven miraculous bread that satisfied them each and every day. And so they ate unleavened bread to remind themselves that their God is a good and faithful provider. It wasn't just the meals, though. Other observances included sacrifices. And these sacrifices were made to remind Israel that they did not bear the weight of their sin. But another bore the weight of their sin. They were reminded that another had to die so that they might live. And that the Lord God himself was faithful to provide even a way out from the judgment of their sin. And then finally, other observances included an assembly of all of the people of Israel gathering together at the tabernacle. And I think when they gathered, it would remind them of, of a verse that, that Peter quotes in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says to the people of God, Once you were not a people, but now you are my people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received 
mercy. When Israel gathered together at the tabernacle, they would be reminded, we, this mass and multitude of people, are the beloved people of God because of the Lord's faithfulness. All of the commands of God would testify to the Lord's faithfulness, but so would the prohibitions. And the major prohibition, the thou shalt nots, of each of these observances, the primary was that they would no longer work on these holy days. At least no ordinary work, and for the Sabbath, no work at all. Now listen, this would be a really easy observance for me. I would be like super holy when it came to not working. It's one of the ways that the Lord has gifted me. If you don't believe me, you can ask my wife. Right? And, and it was meant to be a good gift. Some of you guys are looking at me like, I don't even know what that guy's talking about. Yeah. Let's count up the number of hours you've spent binge watching TV shows this work week. And we'll see if you can join me in that category. Right? The, the truth is that this was meant to be a good gift. That for a people that were laborers in nature, an agrarian society, the Lord was telling them for at least one day a week, rest. And imagine for a people that had been for 400 years slaves, driven tirelessly, worked, not because they desired to, but because they were forced to, the Lord was saying, I am a good master that gives you rest. But also I confess that as much as it was a good gift, it also would have been a dangerous invitation. This is not an efficient way for a people to live if they have to provide for themselves. Even one day of rest meant one day of not providing for themselves. One day of not working to provide for their families or working the land that God would give them. When I married Rachel, her parents, they, they own a small trucking company. And uh, you know the, the truth is for my life and career and even for my parents, uh, they, they worked a fairly normal work week. Right? Friday or Monday, Friday, Friday to Friday. This is normal for you guys, right? Monday to Friday, nine to five ish, 40 hours. You had holidays, vacation, you had sick time that you could take off. It was the same for me. But for Rachel's parents who own this trucking company, if they didn't work, they didn't make money. There was no sick time because if they weren't in the trucks, the trucks didn't go out. And if the trucks didn't go out, then the trucks didn't make money. And so there was always this wrestling of, can I take time off? Can I afford to? Do I really need to? Israel would have felt this. But as they were forced to stop by the Lord's command, they would have to reckon with whether or not they were the ones actually providing for themselves or whether the Lord God who always had provided for them really was the provider. Listen, church, we have a great need to remember. I've told this story before, but when we lived up in Chicago, Rachel and I moved houses. And, and my route home from work was the exact same up until I got to one stop sign. And at that stop sign, I would go right to go to our old house, and I would go straight to go to our new house. And so one day, I was driving home, and... I, uh, I was talking to my wife and just kind of autopilot had taken over and I, I got to our home and I pulled in the driveway and I said to my wife, I said, hey, where are you at? And she said, I'm at home. 
I said, no, you're not. She said, I'm at home right now. I said, listen, I'm not an idiot. I'm in our driveway, and your car's not here. And she said, no, she didn't say I'm an idiot. No, you're not in our driveway. I'm looking out the window. I didn't go straight at the stop sign. I turned right. And I'm really glad that the new owners didn't call the cops on me as I sat in their driveway, probably staring and yelling into a phone creepily. Right? But the truth is that I needed not to let autopilot take over. I needed, when I got to that stop sign, to say to myself, hey, Michael, you don't live over there anymore. You live there. And the Lord is saying, we are amnesiacs when it comes to His goodness and faithfulness. It does not take long for us to forget how good He is, to begin to fear that He is less good than we think He is, to, to fear that we're going to be left all alone when we need hope the most, to, to fear that we have to fight for ourselves because He won't fight for us. And so our schedules must be set up in a way that reminds us like a house full of memories that we cannot go to a room without seeing a picture that reminds us of who we truly are. Psalm 92, I love, it says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. This has become kind of my rallying cry for my own personal devotion and for my family. God, if you let us do nothing else, would you help us to declare your steadfast love in the morning and to be reminded every night of your faithfulness. Our schedules are meant to remind us of God's faithfulness. Finally, our schedules are meant to draw us into relationship. Leviticus 23 begins by framing all of these observances into two categories. Holy convocations or holy gatherings or assemblies and the Lord's appointed feasts or times that we talked about. These holy convocations were central, honestly, to all of the major or the high festivals of Israel. At the end of this appointed eating or time of ceasing of work, they would gather together at the tabernacle, eventually the temple, in order to be together as the people of God, worshiping and bringing offerings and sacrifices to Him. You know, one of my favorite things about being a small-town pastor is that I get to run into you guys at Tom's, right? I get to see you at the ball fields. I see you at the homecoming parades or as we ride rides. I see you at the football games or the basketball games. I get to actually run into you even when I'm not being intentional. And it's good for my heart it's a good reminder that when I see you, I am amongst the very people of God, my brothers and sisters in Christ. These holy assemblies were to do the same thing for Israel, to enter back into the truth that they did not live alone, but they lived with a family. Maybe one way to say it is this. The Lord God does not primarily save people. The Lord God primarily saves a people. You were not saved to be simply your beloved, the beloved of God alone, but to be the beloved of God within the beloved people of God. 
And so, does your schedule draw you into relationship within the family of God? Because here's what I know. The day is coming where the holy convocations of Israel, where our gatherings as the people of God will come to full fruition, where for eternity we will be gathered around the throne of God, living in His presence as one people of God. There will not be a holy and an unholy people of God. There will simply be the people of God. And so even now, we begin to live out that reality. But beyond the convocations, the second piece or category of these observances is that they were the Lord's, that they belonged to the Lord's. We talked about this with His Lordship. But he wasn't just declaring lordship to declare lordship. He was declaring his lordship. He was arranging these schedules to bring the people of God into his presence, physically into his presence as they gathered at the tabernacle and offered offerings, but also spiritually and emotionally, relationally into his presence and prayer and thanksgiving and worship. The feasts were ultimately about the people of God entering back into His presence. You know, this happened. It talks about it in the Feast of Firstfruits. Israel brings a wave offering, a sheaf of, of the barley harvest. And it says the priests would wave it in front of the, the tabernacle of the Lord and they would be, quote-unquote, accepted. You know, the word accepted... Like a, a lot of our translations, it, it, it's kind of, it's drained of, of the emotion of it. The, the root word behind the Hebrew word for accepted actually means desire, delight. The people of God were not simply in that moment begrudgingly accepted by the Lord. But as they came and delighted in the Lord, He delighted in them. The Lord had to set apart a day of the year to say, come into my presence and allow me to delight in you. Be reminded that you are my beloved. And then the Feast of Trumpets, which I love. There's actually not a lot written in Scripture about the Feast of Trumpets other than the fact that this day of rest was highlighted by the blowing of these horns. But there's only two reasons that you would blow a horn in this point in time in the ancient Middle East. One was oftentimes when an army was getting ready to attack. Right? We, we hear Jesus, when he returns, he will blow the trumpet sound as he declares victory over this world. But the other reason to, to blow a trumpet is when you're in need. When you are desperately in need of help. And the Lord God says to the people of Israel, blow these trumpets. Declare with all of your might how desperately you hear me. And here's what's beautiful about the Lord himself appointing this feast. Because he tells them to cry out in need to them, they have utter assurance that he will hear and respond. The Lord is inviting us into relationship. And so let me ask you the hard question. How many of you can say that you are thankful for your schedules? 
because your schedules invite you into intimate relationship with the Lord. And how many of you can instead, like me, say the opposite, that it's actually your schedule that tends to keep you from intimate relationship with the Lord? Our schedules are meant to be a good gift that lead us into relationship, not keep us from relationship. You know, schedule is not just something the Lord was concerned with in Leviticus. Jesus was utterly concerned with his schedule when he came. On the first real day of his public ministry, after healing dozens and dozens, the next day we're told that Jesus awakes early in the morning in order to go and be alone with his heavenly Father. He goes to be in relationship with him, to begin his day face to face with him. And then the disciples come and they tell him, Jesus, we've been looking for you. There's dozens more that need to be healed. They've heard of you. They've come to see you, to be taught by you, to be healed by you. And then Jesus says the most incredible, maybe incredibly opposite of what we would anticipate. He says, it's time to go. Right? You would think the disciples would be like, Jesus, no, 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 no. Like, I don't think you understand. Yesterday was a big hit. And they're waiting for us again. And Jesus says, it's time to go. And you know why he can say something as odd as let us leave the people that long for us to go to a new place where they don't know us? It's because he had been in the presence of his father. And so his father could direct him any way he saw fit. Because the Lord of heaven and earth knows better than we do. Knows better than humanity. And so Jesus, with all confidence, can say, even if it makes no sense, let us follow my Father. Church, listen, the truth is that we no longer live as orphans. We don't have to provide for ourselves. We don't have to make a future for ourselves. We don't have to figure things out ourselves. But for most of us, our schedule and our days, our weeks and our months testify that maybe God plays a role in our life, but we are still the central figures. But if you're anything like me, I'm exhausted from being the central figure in my life. I am exhausted from trying to provide for myself and my family. I'm exhausted from trying to find contentment and value and joy. And so let me invite you to what Jesus invites you. Come. Lay down your burdens and yoke yourself. Attach yourself every moment of every day of every year from here until Jesus calls us home to the Lordship of our God that we might know him and be known by him. Pray with me, church.